This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. Say you're a professional landscaper. You're not just tough. You're professional grade. And so are your tools. Because you got best-in-class Echo X-Series products. You got a perfect balance of power, weight, and performance from a professional-grade 56-volt battery system. Max-out battery tech that gives 100% power till a 0% charge. Echo X-Series means best-in-class tools for best-in-class pros. So when we say Echo is professional-grade, we mean it. Echo. Power on and on. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In 1898, at the height of European interest in antiquity, Deutsche Orient Gesellschaft, the German Oriental Society, holds a meeting. The group, DOG for short, is made up of wealthy elites. They are bankers and railway barons, politicians, even an archbishop. Many are connected to the Kaiser himself. They meet to discuss the hunt for the hanging gardens of Babylon. Other countries are uncovering wonders across the Mediterranean. The German Empire cannot be left out. Finding a long-lost great wonder will bring their nation glory and pride. An experienced archaeologist, Robert Koldewey, is commissioned to commence with the excavation of ancient Babylon. He must come back to Germany with nothing less than evidence of ancient splendor. Dog demands it. The Kaiser demands it. The public demands it. Failure is not an option. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm Richard. And I'm Molly. This is our final episode on the famed Hanging Gardens of Babylon and why, to this day, their existence is in doubt. If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Thursday. While you're there, we'd greatly appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, 
and at parcast.com. In 1899, as Robert Koldovai arrived in modern-day Iraq, then a part of the Ottoman Empire, he quickly became aware of how difficult his task would be. The hanging gardens of Babylon were said to be an engineering marvel, a man-made mountain on the Euphrates River. But as we explored in the last episode, this legendary landmark was quickly lost to time. Of the seven wonders of the ancient world, it is the only one to have no direct evidence of its existence. In fact, the idea of the hanging gardens of Babylon only came about centuries after Babylon was inhabited. The only reason we even know of the gardens today is from references in ancient Greek and Roman texts, which themselves are dated years after the gardens are said to have existed. Based on those texts, the gardens were supposedly built as early as 605 BC by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the second monarch of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was definitely home to the largest walls and temples in the world at that time. The Hanging Gardens were said to be especially impressive, not just for their beauty, but for the engineering feat that watered the gardens. It was said that the gardens grew on multiple terraces, so bountiful that they overgrew their foundations and seemed to float in midair. Each terrace was self-watered by some kind of pulley or pump. By at least the 2nd century AD, however, there was nothing left of these structures save ruins. There are no historical records showing how and when the city was destroyed. We know Alexander the Great visited in 331 BC, when the city was still a wonder to behold. But when the Roman Emperor Trajan visited in 117 AD, the city had fallen. In this episode, we'll explore in detail the results of the Koldavai excavations. We'll also carefully examine the sources referencing the gardens. Perhaps this is all a search for a legend that was fabricated in ancient times. It might be that hanging garden enthusiasts have put too much behind the name. Maybe the hanging gardens weren't in Babylon at all. One modern scholar, Stephanie Daly of Oxford, contends that the gardens were not in Babylon, but 250 miles to the north, in the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. We'll explore her theory in depth and decide whether it makes a convincing argument. When the mystery is this ancient, no stone can be left unturned in the search for answers. Geography, language, and facts themselves lose all meaning the further back the search leads us. A treasure this magnificent could come no other way. Those who wish to discover the gardens, to prove their existence, do so through intense research and physical labor, all while risking their own credibility. In 1899, Robert Koldavai set to work at the ruins of Babylon with a large team provided through a relationship between the Kaiser and Sultan Abdul Hamid II, who would be the last monarch of his dynasty to fully control the region. In episode one, we discussed how Koldavai brought a level of careful excavation to the ruins that had never previously been applied. Specifically, he had over 200 workers serving beneath him. But upon his arrival in 1899, Koldavai found Babylon in a worse state than ever. Thieves and locals had recklessly scavenged the upper ruins. The once magnificent city 
had been reduced to huge piles of rubble buried beneath the earth. The workers hauled away layers of mud, sand, and dirt, each day penetrating further into the ruins. Koldavai urged caution among the crew. Every shovel of dirt could contain evidence of the gardens. In the first year, the workers uncovered the city processional where Alexander the Great was said to have strode into Babylon. The gardens were supposedly situated at the end of this thoroughfare. Immediately, it became clear that there was much to uncover beneath all the rubble. The remainder of the first two years was filled with discovery. Tablets, artwork, entire structures. In 1902, an ornate brick structure began to emerge from the dirt. Meticulously, the workers wiped away centuries of obfuscating debris to reveal golden bulls and dragons underneath. Koldavai momentarily hoped that this might be a piece of the Hanging Gardens. However, further digging revealed that this was not a palace wall, but a gate. Now known as the Ishtar Gate, it would become an iconic symbol of Koldavai's findings. The gate's height, deep blue color, and beautiful golden animal reliefs stood out against a sea of brown relics. This was something the German public could get excited about. The gate proved helpful in mapping the rest of the town. Koldavai's team worked quickly to unearth the walls of the city that extended from either side of the Ishtar Gate. Koldavai had read Josephus, the ancient Roman historian discussed in Part 1, and was impressed to see that Josephus' description of the walls was accurate. Koldavai became optimistic that the historian's description of the gardens would also prove valid. While the gardens remained hidden, other forgotten marvels emerged. The city's many temples were uncovered, including the Temple of Marduk, also called the Esagila, which King Xerxes had sacked in 484 BC. In most cases, Koldavai's discoveries exceeded expectation. A huge number of clay tablets were uncovered, providing context for Nebuchadnezzar's reign and speaking to his building projects. The stories of walls so wide that two chariots could ride side by side were true. Truly, the city would have towered over the plains, visible for miles in all directions. By 1910, both a northern and southern palace had been uncovered. The archaeologist had given most of his professional life to the ancient city, and still, there was no evidence for the hanging gardens. But it was around this time that Koldavai would finally uncover a structure that he felt matched the descriptions of the gardens. In his summaries of his excavations, Koldavai writes of the vaulted building. It's an unusual structure located in the northeast corner of the southern citadel overlooking the entire city. The vaulted building is made up of 14 vaults, or arched rooms, which themselves are surrounded by a corridor. In one of the cells off of this corridor is a well, but Koldavai notes that it is unlike any other well in the ancient world. He writes, quote, I see no other explanation than that a mechanical hydraulic machine stood here, which worked on the same principle as our chain pump, where buckets attached to a chain work on a wheel placed over a well. This contrivance would provide a continuous flow of water." Koldavai was clearly onto something. 
This hydraulic system was the closest thing to the self-watering mechanism of the gardens that he had found. He continued to explore the vaulted building. Vaulted construction itself boasted curved arches supporting a roof. This type of architecture was uncommon in Babylon, and indeed, Koldavai notes that the vaulted building shows signs of inexperienced and uneven construction. Even more telling, this was the only significant bit of stone construction that Koldavai found in all of Babylon. He concluded that this type of material and method of architecture could support a layer of earth upon which trees may have been planted. Inside, he notes the cool temperature and pleasant aroma that wafts in from above ground. This would have been an ideal space for important figures to conduct business during the summer months. There's noticeably nothing hanging in Koldavai's description of the vaulted building. He believed that Josephus's use of the word pensile, or hanging, more than anything revealed his bias toward Roman architecture. This was a common word to describe the suspended balconies that were popular in construction throughout the empire. Koldavai concludes his description of the vaulted building by suggesting that any structure with a garden on its roof would have impressed travelers. Whether the garden seemed to float or hang was irrelevant. Compared to the rest of the city, the vaulted building was a small feature, and it didn't match with the descriptions of a tiered mountain towering over the valley. The exact application of the watering mechanism was also inconclusive. The German government and the Oriental Society nevertheless promoted Koldavai's excavations as the answer to the ancient mystery of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Tourists brought to the site in modern times are still told that the vaulted building is the ruin of the ancient wonder, as if it were an accepted fact. There was tremendous pressure on Koldavai to produce results that would dazzle the German public and incite jealousy in other countries. The Seven Wonders were especially in vogue at the time. Both the 1800s and early 1900s saw widespread European fascination with the ancient Mediterranean. This fad, often referred to as Egyptomania, was, as the name suggests, more concerned with the ancient pharaohs and pyramids of Egypt. That region owed its fame to French excavations that began as early as the mid-19th century and continue to this day. Germany was hoping to rival that popularity with its excavations in Babylon. It's this agenda that leads modern scholars to doubt or outright debunk Koldavai's theory that the vaulted building is the site of the Hanging Gardens. His description of the vaulted building already takes many logical leaps uncharacteristic of the archaeologist. The actual findings, published in 1914, fill nine pages, though only the first few discuss the vaulted building. And while the vaulted architecture, stonework, and strange well are interesting, Nothing about them suggests that they could have led to the massive garden of legend. There are no tree roots, no indication of foliage whatsoever. The ruin itself sits far beneath the palace, meaning it would have to have been much taller to reach the roof. If anything, this subterranean, well-ventilated space features characteristics of a storeroom. Tablets taken from the room seem to support this. Koldavai then proceeds to make thin connections between his findings and the classical references to the gardens. It reads almost as if Koldavai knew he was stretching the results. He even writes, quote, 
It would lead us too far afield if I were to attempt here to emphasize all the points that weigh for or against my contention, end quote. A simple translation of this line might be, there are as many reasons to doubt this proposal as there are to accept it. But it's hard to hold Koldavai's theory against him. He had worked for nearly two decades and provided unparalleled insight into ancient Babylon that is still useful today. It's unfortunate that in his time, an audience hungry for the Hanging Gardens didn't appreciate more subtle contributions, such as the mapping of the city and the translation of tablets. When excavations came to a close in 1917, Koldavai had already contributed to a significant step forward in our understanding of the ancient world. Unfortunately, warfare would halt any further discovery. The spread of World War I brought such violent warfare to the Babylonian ruins that it made the conflicts of the Greeks and Persians from centuries prior seem like schoolyard fights. With the veil of history once again drawn around the actual site of Babylon, it became even more imperative for researchers to turn back to the classical references that inspire the search. Koldavai's flaw was that he was driven not by objective fact, but by a need to prove the accuracy of a legend. This was not Koldavai's biggest mistake, however. We mentioned that Koldavai based his search on the writings of Josephus. Such an ancient, renowned classical historian was surely trustworthy. But as we dig deeper, we may find that not even the classical historians could be trusted. Perhaps the Hanging Gardens were merely a figment of the ancient imagination. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now, back to conspiracy theories. Despite nearly two decades of excavation by German archaeologist Robert Koldewey from 1899 to 1917, little evidence was uncovered to prove the existence of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. This search was driven in the first place by descriptions of the gardens in ancient Greek and Roman histories. But how do we know these are trustworthy sources? History is like science. It's the process of posing a question, a hypothesis, and testing its accuracy through various trials. But like any experiment, the process of historical vetting is prone to human error. We've discussed how in the field of archaeology, even the most stringent of archaeologists, such as Robert Koldewey, tended to twist facts in an attempt to prove the existence of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. The ultimate impact of his excavations was positive, with thousands of tablets and relics being uncovered that led to a greater understanding of ancient Babylon. Ultimately, however, when it comes to the gardens, the scientific principle of allowing evidence to drive the conclusion was ignored. As we turn our attention to the ancient Greek and Roman written accounts of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, we find that this same principle applies. These authors often accepted at face value that legends and even older histories were accurate. The various historical tomes and volumes from the last century BC and early centuries AD discussing the Hanging Gardens are often a wonder to behold. They were adapted from scrolls into codexes and then into bound books in the Middle Ages. Each seemed more like spell books out of a fantasy film with two-foot-long pages full of elaborate illustration. Their names are similarly fantastical. The Bibliotheca Historica, 
Preparatio Evangelica Periton Hepta Theamaton. It's important here to not mistake grandeur for credibility. Just because a book is old and aesthetically impressive doesn't mean its contents are accurate. To find the real hanging gardens, every source must be vetted for authenticity. The very process of the sources being transmitted across centuries, from scroll to codex to bound book, by itself introduces room for human error or interference. Many of these texts were translated into English by Christian monks who lived in the mid-first millennium AD. And we must take on faith that nothing was added or omitted due to their religious agenda. Luckily, in some cases, the original parchment survives. Flavius Josephus, the most famous historian to discuss the Hanging Gardens, was actually not Roman nor Greek by birth. He was Jewish, born in Jerusalem in 37 AD. The historian was a controversial figure, having gone from Jewish military commander to Roman citizen. He was seen by many as a traitor. But looking at his work, it seems as if he felt guilt over his role in helping the Romans to conquer his homeland. Josephus's work focuses on the history of the Jewish people. Writing from Rome in the late first century AD, he intended to share that history with the Romans and the rest of the Mediterranean. Josephus authored several histories, one of which, against Appian, was discussed in the last episode for its reference to the Hanging Gardens. For Josephus, discussion of the gardens helped to fill in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, which in turn aided in supporting the Old Testament accounts of the king, which in turn lent credence to the Jewish records and beliefs. Once again, accounts of the garden are subjective. Josephus wasn't writing for historical record. He had an ulterior motive. True. But while the Nebuchadnezzar of the Bible is more a cruel dictator than peaceful garden maker, Secular references to his very existence lend credence to the Bible's version of ancient history. In his work, Josephus references Greek historian Alexander Polyhistor of the first century BC, who in turn was taking from the Babylonian priest Berossus of the third century BC, who took his information from Babylon's Esagila archive. Notably, Berossus is the only Babylonian in history to have supposedly written about the gardens. However, neither Polyhistor nor Berossus's original text survives to the present day. So, in essence, the source here is a game of telephone. There's four degrees of separation between Josephus and the gardens. Josephus also tells us that Berossus wrote about the gardens to specifically counter the notion from the Greek historian Theseus that the gardens were actually the product of Semiramis, the semi-mythical warrior queen of Assyria. Yet again, we find a historian with a specific national bias, looking to claim the gardens for the glory of his country. Like Josephus and Koldavai would centuries later, Berossus, who likely lived in a post-gardens Babylon, was in search of evidence to prove his hypothesis, not in search of the truth. But we've just arrived at another source for the gardens, Theseus. Once more, no copies of his histories have survived to the present day, and so we rely on the later historian Diodorus. Theseus lived in the 5th century BC, Diodorus the 1st century BC. Both men were Greek, 
Batesius served as the court physician to Artaxerxes II of Persia, who counted Babylon as a part of his kingdom. Theseus is perhaps best known for his rivalry with another great historian, Herodotus. And it's through that bitter animosity that we must view two histories of Babylon. Theseus gives the most specific account of the construction of the Hanging Gardens, with details that range from the exact measurements of the completed structure to the type of plaster used to hold the bricks together. He promotes the idea that the gardens were truly a wonder, claiming, quote, the earth was deep enough to contain the roots of many varieties of trees, which fascinated the beholder with their great size and their beauty, end quote. The level of specificity in this description is somewhat promising, providing not just the what, but the how lends credibility to Theseus. It also helps that he was actually a member of the court of a ruler of Babylon, rather than a historian across the Mediterranean synthesizing second-hand accounts. This would seem to be one of the greatest pieces of evidence pointing to the existence of the gardens thus far. But, as always, the human element to this source casts doubt on its credibility. As previously mentioned, Theseus was one half of a historic rivalry. The other half of that rivalry was Herodotus, the Greek historian often referred to as the father of history. Living in the 5th century BC, Herodotus hailed from Halicarnassus, where he would have bore witness to another wonder, the Mausoleum of Mausolus. And although he came from a well-off family, Herodotus had no connections to royalty. He was the sort of objective historian that is more common today, Unlike his predecessors, he approached any subject he wrote about scientifically and was careful to not take for fact anything he could not prove resolutely. His massive account of the Greco-Persian Wars provides a largely factual description of those conflicts. Unlike his predecessors, who by today's standards wrote historical fiction, Herodotus would cite all of his sources and point out when he didn't have satisfying corroboration for certain events or stories. When Herodotus discusses Babylon in his history of the wars, he goes into great detail describing the walls and temples. He does not mention the gardens. This is perhaps the most damning piece of evidence against the gardens existing in Babylon. 19th century scholar George Rawlinson notes that Theseus took issue with the praise heaped on Herodotus. Yes, Herodotus came from an influential household but he didn't work for a king as Theseus did. Theseus thus made it his mission to contradict the famous historian, especially in matters of the Near East, where Theseus served. Remember that Theseus suggested the gardens were the creation of an Assyrian queen named Semiramis. Nothing has been found in the archives of Esagila to verify this claim. That being said, Semiramis actually appears as the creator of the gardens in a few of our sources. But we get very little useful history on the queen in any of these works, especially the works of Diodorus and therefore Theseus. She is described as the daughter of a goddess and as having ruled Assyria for 42 years while disguised as her own son. Not surprisingly, there's no archaeological evidence of this. There are inscriptions from the region dated to the 9th century BC that describe a queen Semuramat, which is the Assyrian version of the Greek name. 
She did rule Assyria for five years until her son came of age, and in that time may have left an impression on other nations used to male rulers. Regardless, this was hundreds of years before the gardens would have existed in the 7th century BC. Antisius's reliability continues to fall into question from here. He writes of an Assyrian empire that lasted for 1,306 years, of which there is no evidence. Furthermore, the names that he provides for the dynasty of that empire are not even properly Assyrian. Some are Greek, others Aryan. As Rawlinson notes, this is, quote, a forgery of the clumsiest kind, end quote. And so the rivalry between Theseus and Herodotus is put to an end. The latter was a historian, the former a storyteller. It's another dead end in the search for the gardens, but there are other sources worth investigating. With each of the two sources we've discussed thus far, we've pulled back the layers to understand that both Josephus and Theseus were actually referencing other works. This introduces room for error, and as we've seen, both accounts abound with inconsistencies and outright fabrications. However, that still leaves the fact that two historians separated by time, geography, and nationality, both were somehow aware of the legend of the Hanging Gardens. And they are not the only historians to reference the gardens. In part one, we discussed Alexander the Great, who was said to have seen the Hanging Gardens of Babylon when he first captured the city. We know this from the History of Alexander by Quintus Curtius Rufus. Quintus Curtius was a member of the Roman military, though little of him is known. He is believed to have died in 53 AD. The recovered manuscripts of his History of Alexander reveal that he took his information from an older historian, Clitarchus, who was an actual member of Alexander's army in 331 BC. Once more, we reach the frustrating conclusion that our source is entirely dependent on a much older document lost to time. But by now, this additional layer of a source within a source is familiar to us. Of course, neither man's history survives completely intact today, but Quintus Curtis's specific description of the gardens does. He spends most of his passages on Babylon discussing the walls, the Euphrates, and the palace, but he does offer a few lines to the gardens. The Babylonians also have a citadel 3.7 kilometers in circumference. The foundations of its turrets are sunk 10 meters into the ground, and the fortifications rise 24 meters above it at the highest point. On its summit are the Hanging Gardens, a wonder celebrated by the fables of the Greeks. They are as high as the top of the walls and owe their charm to the shade of many trees. The columns supporting the whole edifice are built of rock, and on top of them is a flat surface of squared stones strong enough to bear the deep layer of earth placed upon it and the water used for irrigating it." End quote. This information is initially exciting. The specific build of the gardens matches what Koldavai found in the vaulted building. It's interesting that Quintus Curtius called the gardens, quote, a wonder celebrated by the fables of the Greeks, end quote. Perhaps unintentionally, he calls to attention the fact that this Babylonian wonder 
is more often discussed by Greeks than actual Babylonians, and he calls the structure a fable. This contrasts with the specific dimensions provided, a circumference of 3.7 kilometers and a height of 24 meters. That's certainly an interesting pair of measurements. It suggests that while the gardens covered a lot of territory, they weren't particularly tall, as some sources claim. However, it is a structure that would tower above the city walls, as many sources suggest, but archaeologists have trouble believing that mud brick, the chief building material of the Babylonians, could support such weight. Koldavai did find that parts of the vaulted room were made of stone, but not on this scale. Furthermore, Quintus Curtius again refers to Semiramis, the Assyrian queen, as the creator of the gardens. This reveals his dependence on Clitarchus's history, who by this detail is revealed to perhaps be relying on the dubious Theseus. Clitarchus himself was not above criticism. In his 95 AD discussion of rhetoric entitled Institutio Oratoria, Hispanic Roman citizen Quintilian accuses Clitarchus of being, quote, clever but not honest, essentially a great writer with weak facts. And Roman politician Cicero, in his letters to Marcus Junius Brutus of Shakespearean fame, describes Clitarchus as, quote, quite willing to lie if it made a story more lively, end quote. Once again, we have a source that when the layers are pulled back, reveals a rotten core. And as we continue our search, we find that many of the other classical sources for the Hanging Gardens follow a similar pattern. Eusebius of Caesarea in the 4th century AD quotes Abedinus of the 3rd century BC, who is quoting Megasthenes of the 4th century BC. Philo of Byzantium, the ancient Greek engineer born about 280 BC, writes about the gardens, but there's doubt as to whether that work should actually be attributed to him. And regardless, it makes several errors when describing the other wonders that leads historians to doubt its credibility. Finally, we arrive at Strabo, the Greek geographer whose life spanned two millennia, from 63 BC to 23 AD. His description of the garden meets several criteria. It lists realistic dimensions for both the gardens and the city walls. It describes a series of vaulted rooms beneath the earth that supported the gardens, and it provides a means of water to be conveyed to the plant life on top of the structure. And it's in that last detail that we must again begin to doubt the accuracy of his descriptions. Strabo suggests an Archimedes screw was used in the construction of the gardens. The Archimedes screw, an early hydraulic device, is beyond the technical capabilities of the ancient Babylonians. Furthermore, there is no archaeological or written evidence from Babylon discussing such a device. This exhausts our sources. It's easy to see their flaws as a dead end, but there's something of merit in their repetition. For so many historians across so many centuries to have heard of the gardens suggests a kernel of veracity at the center of the legend. It's an ancient game of telephone, but every game of telephone starts with an initial truth. We therefore must consider all of the writings that don't mention the gardens. When discussing a wonder of the world, texts that omit the structure are as useful as ones that include it. 
As we learned in part one, it's extremely damning that there are no written records of the gardens in Babylon when we consider how literate a people the Babylonians were. It's also damning that later cultures that occupied Babylon also do not mention the Hanging Gardens. For example, the Persian Empire, which controlled Babylon beginning in 539 BC, made no record of the wonder. But we did say that good history has a lot in common with good science. When a hypothesis is disproven, that doesn't mean it can't be modified and found correct upon further testing. And so, we have to attack the original question. Perhaps we shouldn't be asking whether the Hanging Gardens of Babylon existed, but rather, were the famous Hanging Gardens necessarily located in Babylon? Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. Now our story continues. For most of history, the investigation to uncover the Hanging Gardens of Babylon has met with failure. But until 21st century investigations, few have thought to consider that the wonder may not have been in Babylon at all. This was a question that only a few of our classical historians seem to even approach. And even then, they did so with little investigation. Robert Koldavai did oversee excavations in other regions of Mesopotamia, but there are no mentions in his other writings of the gardens. This may have been due to his confidence in what he did find at Babylon, or perhaps due to his general fascination with the city. In the modern day, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon are a challenging mystery for multiple reasons. Their age, the lack of reference to them, and the ephemeral nature of gardens in general. But the other unfortunate truth is that they are located in a region ransacked by war that century after century has known conflict. In the early centuries AD, Roman citizens visiting Babylon found the resulting ruin of hundreds of years of Greek and Persian conflicts. In the early 20th century, after nearly two decades of excavation, Robert Koldavai was forced to leave as Iraq became a theater of war between German and Allied forces. In the mid-20th century, World War II brought with it British occupation, which would lead to decades of rebellion and civil war. In 2003, a coalition of armed forces led by the United States invaded Iraq, resulting in the complete collapse of government. It's against this backdrop that any modern garden seeker must conduct their search. In truth, on-site research is no longer possible. Halfway across the world at the University of Cambridge, Assyriologists, researchers who focus on the study of ancient Mesopotamia, are limited to the various tablets and cuneiform reproductions available to them. It's here that Stephanie Daly of Oxford's Oriental Institute conducted her research into the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, some 2,600 years after they were said to have existed. In addition to her study of Mesopotamia, she also maintains a large garden. Published in 2013, Daly's The Mystery of the Hanging Garden of Babylon, an elusive world wonder traced, chronicles her journey to find the gardens. Initially, the wonder had been of very little interest to her. Daly's work is much more scientific than any garden seeker we've previously discussed. Her goals had always been to better understand the people and culture of Mesopotamia, not to prove a wonder existed, 
For a student of archaeology, the legend is just that, a legend. But after an early 90s lecture at Oxford on ancient gardens, in which a crowd member accosted Daly for omitting the hanging gardens from the discussion, the renowned Assyriologist decided to educate herself on a topic that had previously seemed unimportant. As she began the process of learning more about the wonder, she ran into many of the same problems that we've already explored. Time after time, every reference to the gardens proved flawed. Beyond that, Koldavai's excavation was inconclusive. Daly actually dismisses his findings due to their lack of explanation for how the gardens were watered. She further points out that the vaulted building was nowhere near the river. But rather than let this deter her, beginning in about 1993, Daly sought to look outside of Babylon for other examples of gardens in Mesopotamia. She began to look at archaeological records from the region between 800 and 500 BC, a safe estimate for when the gardens might have been built. Daly's attention was immediately drawn to a number of sculpted panels recovered from various palaces in northern Iraq. The first was found in 1854, taken from the palace of Ashurbanipal in Nineveh, modern-day Mosul in northern Iraq. Ashurbanipal, an ancient king of Assyria, ruled from 668 BC to 627 BC. The panel was significant in that it went to great lengths to depict the massive amount of foliage crisscrossed with what looked like small streams. It's clearly meant to be a garden, and at its peak is the king, depicted in the traditional Mesopotamian fashion with pointy hat, beard, and side-facing stance. Most interesting is the vaulted aqueduct to the right of the king. Its pattern indicates it is made of stone. The water slopes off of it as if coming from a great height. When this panel was first discovered, many assumed it depicted the Babylonian gardens themselves. Of course, there would be no reason for an Assyrian king's palace to glorify a Babylonian accomplishment. Inscriptions suggest it is in fact meant to portray the Garden of Sennacherib, the grandfather of Ashurbanipal. Another wall relief discovered in the early 20th century, this one in the palace of Sargon at Khorsabad in northern Iraq, depicts a similar mountainous garden. Sargon was the father of Sennacherib, ruling Assyria from 722 to 705 BC. Though the sculpture is less ornate than the later one, it similarly depicts multiple levels of foliage tiered in such a fashion that recalls the descriptions of the hanging gardens in classical texts. A third and final stone relief, this one found in the palace of Sennacherib himself, depicts an even more impressive garden. Sennacherib, who ruled from 705 to 681 BC, is in many ways the Assyrian equivalent of Nebuchadnezzar, who would destroy Sennacherib's kingdom a century later. Sennacherib ruled during the later years of what is now known as the Neo-Assyrian Empire. As with the Neo-Babylonian Empire that Nebuchadnezzar began, Sennacherib's dynasty was seen as a golden age for Assyria, one in which the nation's borders were larger than in any previous century. And while Nebuchadnezzar would, a century later, be known for throwing off the yoke of Assyrian dominance, Sennacherib was known for having cemented Assyria's rule over Babylon. Also like Nebuchadnezzar, Sennacherib was known for his building projects. 
His palace was said to be the most magnificent in the world at the time of its construction. And as we've already seen, depictions of his royal garden survive to this day. Here we can begin to understand where Greek and Roman authors, living 700 years later, may have conflated the reputations of these two Mesopotamian kings who lived a hundred years apart. But as Stephanie Daly notes, there were important differences between these two empires. Most relevant to the hunt for the gardens is their geography. Babylon was flat, while Assyria was mountainous. This is key to understanding the irrigation techniques of the two cultures. Babylonian gardens, as described in recovered cuneiform tablets, consisted of small ditches dug in a grid pattern around the plants. This slow trickle of water allowed for the cultivation of primarily smaller plants, such as flowers and shrubs. The largest plant Babylonians grew was the date palm, a relatively short palm tree common to the region. By contrast, Assyrian gardens took great advantage of the water that ran down from the nearby mountains. The wall relief from the palace of Ashurbanipal depicts an aqueduct. These ancient irrigation systems, used more commonly in the Roman Empire centuries later, harnessed the power of gravity. As water from the mountains travels through the aqueduct, it builds momentum. Once the water reaches the city, it can be used to power a hydraulic system. With access to not only larger quantities of water, but a more powerful method of conveyance, the Assyrians could provide irrigation for immense gardens that contained large trees and exotic plants brought in from all corners of the Middle East. Stephanie Daly thought so, and she already had the beginnings of the archaeological evidence to prove it. Taking her research on the road in 2013, Daly journeyed to northern Iraq and visited the mountains north of Nineveh. The ruin itself was inaccessible due to the ongoing conflict at the time. It was an incredibly dangerous journey, but Daly was determined to make it. And she didn't need to see the ruins themselves. The mountains would do. Daly knew that the aqueduct of Sennacherib extended to the mountains. As Stephanie Daly arrived in the northern regions of Nineveh where the remains of the aqueduct lie, she realized that Sennacherib was actually far more accomplished than Nebuchadnezzar could ever lay claim to. The canals that Sennacherib ordered dug to direct the rivers into the city were numerous, but it's the aqueduct that remains the most impressive. Beginning in the mountains themselves, the aqueduct traveled 40 to 60 miles to reach Nineveh. It was 100 meters wide, 20 meters deep, and sloped downward at a rate of one meter for every kilometer of distance. As Daly surveyed the ruins, she noted that the aqueduct was definitely constructed not of mud brick as everything was in Babylon, but by stone taken from the mountains. While other aqueducts existed in the world before this, Sennacherib's precise engineering and use of cut stone was far ahead of its time. Rome would make this type of aqueduct famous 400 years later. Daly went on to theorize that the aqueduct emptied into a basin located behind Sennacherib's palace. She based this conclusion on tablets recovered from the site that claimed Sennacherib's garden was located in this area. Indeed, 
Excavations from before the wars show there being a large grassy area behind the palace that could have housed the wonder. Going even further, Daly noted that the stone depictions of Sennacherib's garden seemed to represent that garden as terraced, meaning there were multiple levels of plant life. This fits in best with our classical descriptions of the gardens. If the plants sat on multiple levels, supported by the vaulted stone of an aqueduct, then they would eventually grow over the stone columns. With the vaulted space between each column, the garden would seem to float or hang in midair. While that certainly is an exciting theory, there's still the question of how Sennacherib would have continuously watered each layer of the garden from a central basin. Stephanie Daly would develop a theory explaining this as well, and it would turn out to be her most ingenious contribution to the search for the gardens. Reviewing cuneiform tablets authored by Sennacherib, Daly pinpointed the following passage. Quote, In order to draw water up all day long, I had ropes, bronze wires, and bronze chains made, and I set up the great cylinders and alamitu over cisterns. The word alamitu was, according to Daly, previously misinterpreted, or at least interpreted too literally. Alamitu was the Assyrian word for date palm, a tree common to Mesopotamia. While previous scholars had simply assumed this word referred to trees that were planted in the garden, Daly found its use in a listing of building materials such as chains and cylinders to be odd. She considered its placement next to the word cylinder specifically and began to hypothesize that Sennacherib wasn't referring to trees at all, but a device for which the Assyrians had no literal word. Looking at the bark of a date palm, Daly recognized that it takes on a screw-like shape. Daly specifically cites that in the same way modern humans refer to a computer cursor as a mouse, Sennacherib was using a familiar word, palm, to describe an unfamiliar word, screw. Based on this wording, Daly believes that Sennacherib used a hydraulic pump known as an Archimedes screw to convey water from the basin to the terraces of the garden. The name comes from the Greek scientist Archimedes, who lived from 287 to 212 BC. His eponymous screw invention was essentially a screw-shaped blade housed in a cylinder, which once propelled by water could actually pump that water upward. This explains why the palm or screw appears next to cylinders in Sennacherib's listing. In order to prevent water flying from the screw in all directions, he encased the screws in cylinders, which kept the water moving up the screw and into the gardens. Daly is not the first to suggest an Archimedes screw was used to power the gardens. Recall that Strabo, one of the classical historians who described the hanging gardens, specifically mentioned that an Archimedes screw was used to water them. Because there is no evidence of such a device in Babylon, Daly proves once again that Nineveh is the best match to the legend. She also further proves that between Nebuchadnezzar and Sennacherib, the latter was the superior engineer. As with the aqueduct, Sennacherib put the Archimedes screw to use hundreds of years before the Greeks or Romans. 
With a specific method of water conveyance, archaeological evidence of a massive garden, and a tablet description that provides clear evidence of a hydraulic system, this seems the most likely answer to the mystery of the hanging gardens of Babylon. We see now that they should instead be called the hanging gardens of Nineveh. Stephanie Daly's research far outclasses any other investigations into the subject. Her search is marked by its insistence on adhering to a scientific process of inquiry, attempting not to prove that the gardens were in Babylon or that they even existed at all, but to find where in Mesopotamia there might be evidence that would point to such an accomplishment. More than likely, there will never be a definitive conclusion to this mystery. Some mysteries are too ancient. Perhaps in a distant future, technology will be developed that helps us learn more. Until that day, we're left to ponder two ancient civilizations that at one time were unrivaled by any other in the world, save each other. As we imagine walking through the grand processionals of either city, we mourn the loss of the walls of Babylon, the Tower of Etemenanki, and the Esagila. With these great structures now reduced to rubble and dirt, the words of the Book of Revelation seem especially poignant. Quote, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you any more. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived and in her was found the blood of prophets and saints, and of all who were slain on the earth." End quote. And yet, the legacy of not only the hanging gardens, but all of the seven wonders of the world, perseveres to this day. Their influence is felt in our architecture, from the Statue of Liberty to the gardens at Versailles, to the cathedrals of the world and the skyscrapers that reach for the heavens farther than the Tower of Babel ever could. But we must remember, it all began with two cities, marred by war, beautiful for an instant, then suddenly silent, their palaces returning to sand. Don't forget to subscribe to Unexplained Mysteries on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Greg Castro and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.